Well, thank you, Ollie. And let me add my welcome to that of Ollie's. It's good to see everyone that's here. Um, and anyone who's joining online, let me make you very welcome. Uh, we're going to be reading from Daniel chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Daniel chapter 6. This is the final of our six studies in, in Daniel for uh, this summer series. And we'll be reading from verse number 1 from Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom." Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and so no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O Cain, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded... And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. 
the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done, not, done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. A familiar story to many, I'm sure, we conclude our study here in Daniel chapter 6, but first I want to start with a scene from one of my favorite movies, Finding Nemo. The scene when we first meet Bruce, the great white shark. He's leading the, the fish-friendly shark support group. And you know his slogan is, fish are friends, not food. And all the sharks in the group have to take the oath, the pledge. Who else knows it by heart? I'm a nice shark. I'm not a mindless eating machine. If I am to change my image, I must first change myself. Fish are friends, not food. It's funny because it's ridiculous. I am a nice shark. I am not a mindless eating machine. And we know it's funny and we know it's ridiculous because we know the laws of nature, don't we? We know the rule of the jungle, survival of the fittest. There is no morality. There is no right or wrong in the sea or in the jungle. You can't reason with a shark and you certainly can't reason with a hungry lion. There simply just is the law of instinct, of power, of might, big teeth, big roar. That's what wins. And in this chapter this morning, we, we we're dealing with this question. How do you shut the mouth of a mindless eating machine? How do you deal 
with such power, politics, forces of nature. You know, this picture, the, 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 the den of lions, you know, it was a real concern for Daniel for sure. And it was also a metaphor, wasn't it, for his whole life spent in exile, facing opposition, enemies, often in harm's way. How will Daniel respond in the face of such power? How might we respond if we're asked to stand in the face of forces more powerful than ourselves? Well, that's just a way to get into this familiar story. As we come into chapter 6, we pick up historically from where we left off with Jim last week. King Belteshazzar has been evaluated by God, found wanting, and he lies dead. The Babylonian supremacy is ended. The Medo-Persian empire has begun. And immediately, we're introduced to, to Daniel, now a man well into his 70s, maybe 80s. And he seems to have transitioned exceptionally well into another new regime. We're introduced to the political sort of organization that Darius has instituted, 120 satraps, senior provincial rulers, and three senior cabinet ministers above them, of which Daniel is one. And their job is to make sure that the king suffers no loss. And Daniel stood out among the group of three, so much so that the king was planning to set him to an even higher position, prime minister, if you like, over the world, world's great superpower. I mean, how amazing is that? A believer at the top of the world's greatest superpower, we might say. And we can see, can't we, just right on the surface, that even though Daniel was well past his physical prime, he still had much to give. And no doubt we're seeing Daniel here in an aging, weakening body. But yet, as it says in verse number three, an excellent spirit was within him. How easy it is, isn't it, in old age to become critical or apathetic or frustrated, but not Daniel. He's determined to finish well. An excellent spirit was within him. And one would think that such a man with such a reputation would be appreciated and admired by everyone, but that, of course, is not the case. And so next we're introduced to Daniel's colleagues. They were resentful of his position and his impending promotion had somehow been leaked, no doubt partly because he was off the people of Israel. They're filled with jealousy and bad intentions and they try as hard as they can to find something that could discredit Daniel in regard to his work. Think news of the world phone hacking, talking to aides, wads of money, trying to find someone who's going to say something against Daniel, find some fault, find some crack that they could use to discredit him. But his day-to-day living, his work life was blameless. It was shaped by his faithfulness to God. And so it says in verse number four, no negligence or corruption was found in him. It's a simple but profound example for all of us that we must notice in passing, isn't it? That our behavior ought to be distinctive precisely because we're faithful to our God in every area of our lives, even if it makes us less than popular. 
But these colleagues, their jealousy is a strong and powerful force that I'm sure most of us know. Unchecked, jealousy often pollutes friendships, families, and here, the workplace. And it drives them on on to Ted. Even though they couldn't find fault in his work, they conspire and collude to entrap Daniel in what they say in verse number seven is the law of his God. We can't find fault in his character, they say, so let's trap him in his worship and his faithfulness to his God. They say, let's go to Darius. Let's stroke the king's ego and let's suggest a new legislation that anyone who prays to any other God or any human being other than the king himself over the next month will be thrown to the lions and executed. Maybe they gave it a, a title, you know, Project Cohesive Culture, and they took it to the king. They go as a lobby group. Oh, king, live forever, they say. We have a massive winner of a policy. It has universal support among the administration, and the king, although wise enough to see that Daniel was a man to promote, forgets about him, doesn't consult with him, no doubt blinded by his ego and the prospect of universal support, he rashly signs this edict into law. And the trap is set. Can you imagine Daniel finding out about this new legislation? I'm not sure if he had heard a rumor as it was happening or whether it was a complete blindside but he's now faced with a choice. Remain faithful to God or save his own life. The law of God or the law of the Medes and the Persians have come into conflict and he must choose a side. After 60, maybe even 70 years of long, honest, hard work and civic duty, he's faced with this. What is Daniel going to do. He's on the verge of becoming the most powerful governor in the world except for the king himself. What would your advice be? Would it be one of pragmatism? Look, Daniel, you know, <laughs> you're about to wield an incredible amount of power. You know, it, it, just 30 days. Just stick it out. You can make up for it in other ways afterwards. Maybe one of privatization. Just cover it up. Go underground. Just pray into yourself. It's just a matter of the heart. Or maybe you would encourage a process of, of rethinking faith. You know, is, is prayer really that essential? Haven't you stored up enough, you know, years of, of faithfulness? You've got credit in the bank. Maybe you've become a bit too extreme. You're, you're a bit of a fundamentalist. Is it really that important? This familiar story, this Sunday school story as it's often called, it raises this serious question. Is faithfulness to God worth the loss of all things? What is Daniel going to do? Well, there's a beautiful irony, isn't there, in Daniel's first response when he hears about this law? What is his priority? Well, it's the very thing that is going to threaten his life, the very thing that's going to get him killed. When faced with a life-threatening crisis, to whom else does he go but to the only true and living God who has brought him through these decades of exile? 
how often when faced with a, a crisis or even just a challenge, do we throw ourselves into problem solving or, or giving or seeking advice, talking to everyone and anyone except talking to our living God? But Daniel understood this isn't an issue of politics and power and nature. Our challenges are spiritual. He would agree with Paul, wouldn't he? As he says in Ephesians chapter six, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so as Paul concludes in Ephesians chapter six, the armor of God, he says, be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. If we know ourselves if we know the needs of our community, if we, if, we, if, we, if we know the times in which we live, then we will be committed to making prayer a priority. More than political lobbying, as important as that might be. More than writing to our MPs, as helpful as that can be. More than a legal strategy to, to defend our Christian freedom. We will be most foremost, uh, first and foremost people of prayer. Because that is where true power lies and we're invited to come before the throne of the living God in all the power and authority of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ I've been forced by this chapter to examine my priorities I have to admit my attendance to home group Bible study is exemplary but my attendance at the prayer meeting is not why is that as I examine the priorities that this passage outlines for us, what, par, what value do I put on the, the power of God in our life, in our church life, in our community life, through humble dedication to God-dependent prayer? For Daniel, this obviously isn't an act of rebellion or, or purposeful disobedience, but it's the, just the continued pattern of his daily custom, like food for his body three times a day. He had kneeled in his home towards Jerusalem in accordance with King Solomon's instruction and give thanks to God and pray and plead for help and strength. And so he prayed. Straight away, we see, don't we, in Daniel, no hint of pragmatism, no hint of going underground he doesn't revise or rethink faith. The reality of his living relationship with God would not be compromised, even at the cost, so great as the cost of his own life. But before we move on in the story, let's just step back from the details and, and see there's an intended contrast here with chapter one. You remember when Daniel took that stand in chapter one as a young teenager in the University of Babylon. It was one thing for, for that young teenager, Daniel, to protest and refuse to compromise with the idolatrous values of Babylon, to refuse the meat and the drink. But now it's quite a different thing, isn't it, for this elderly Daniel in chapter six to refuse to obey the law of the Persians, which now criminalized true worship. You know, in chapter one, he had a, a sympathetic official, remember, who would sort of keep an eye 
But now the court officials are bloodthirsty. They're out for his life. And what we have here in chapter 6 is what will become the theme for the rest of the book. The theme of the law of the state for a time banning the worship of God. And the law of man being opposed to the law of God. And it may seem for, for many of us and uh, like a long way away from our life here in Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But, you know, legislators in Stormont, letter, legislators in Westminster and elsewhere in the world are, are moving at a rapid pace to change laws that will impact on Christian faith, particularly in relation to issues of sexuality and gender. And as I've read through some of it over the last couple of weeks, it sounds like for, for some of us, we could very soon be standing in the very shoes that Daniel stood in, where we're faced with the law of our government being in conflict with the law of God. And so we need to ask ourselves the question this morning. As it, the question was asked of Daniel, is our faithfulness to God worth the loss of all our earthly things? Are we willing to suffer? for the gospel of God. One issue that's very timely, and we don't want to go into the details this morning, but is, is the UK's government, government's forthcoming legislation on the ban of so-called homosexual conversion therapy. It's been raised in, in Stormont. I'm sure you've seen it in the news or on social media, and it's going to come up again this week because Netflix has released a documentary called Pray Away, portraying a particular slant on the issue. It is a complex issue, and Ollie and Jim um, have gone into detail in it in the Equip Project podcast, season three, uh, so I recommend that you listen to that. Uh, and, and, and obviously, the point here is that although there are harmful practices that this law is, is looking to, to deal with, there are current definitions that are being pr proposed in, in Stormont and in Westminster that if they go into law would mean that Christian leaders and teachers could be a risk at a, of a criminal record for encouraging, for example, young people to remain celibate until marriage. Or again, there are, there, there are versions of this law that are being discussed and debated in our government that could criminalize someone who, who offers supportive prayer to someone who asks if they're dealing with a struggle with gender alignment or if they ask for pastoral support, wishing to resist the urges towards same-sex attraction. Now, it's all discussions at the moment. And we hope that despite our government's haste to, to, to be seen to be putting these things in law uh, around these issues, we hope that the, that the freedom to teach biblical values will still be protected. But what if it's not? What if it became illegal to say, I'm not convinced that it's God's plan or design or desire for you to go through gender reassignment. Or to take it to the extreme. What if it were illegal to say, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We need to repent of our sinful behavior and turn and trust to Christ and pursue holiness. What if it came with significant personal risk, the risk of a, per, of, a, of a criminal record. What if, like Daniel, we're faced with this question, 
is faithfulness to God more important to me than what the world can do to me? It's not inconceivable that there will be laws at some point in the future for schools to teach sexual education that would encourage homosexuality, transgenderism, and same-sex marriage. It will only become less and less acceptable to oppose abortion. We could imagine a society, couldn't we, where it's framed in such a way that people aren't supposed to oppose a woman's right to choose. The same might be said for the claim of the exclusivity and uniqueness of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What if that was criminalized and became hate speech? We will more and more be asked to stand in Daniel's shoes. It won't be as crass as a pit of lions, but we'll look down the barrel of severe loss to be faithful to God. And what will the, our, our response be? Pragmatism? Let's cut the bits out that are a wee bit unsavory to the majority to try and get the churches filled. Will we privatize? Keep it personal. Don't talk about it in the public square or in work or with friends who might think less of us? Or will we rethink repentance, adjust the gospel so it becomes, as Paul calls, another gospel, which is no gospel, no good news at all? Or will we be fearlessly faithful to God and share his good news in word and backed up like Daniel with our behavior knowing full well that it may be costly. If you're like me, you've already felt the temptation at times to be silent, the threat of social stigma, weird looks at the school gate, cold reception at the office, strained friendships. And it's hard to to stand and make a commitment that we're going to stand faithfully when it's really tough if we're silent with the gospel message now. So we need to make it a habit like Daniel did to to speak the truth in love now despite the cost. With those colleagues and friends in whom we are invested and we we try to show them the love of God, we have to at some point, as, as Rico Tice talks about, cross the pain line in sharing the gospel. Say the bits that are unsavory. Sensitively talk about repentance, accountability, And appropriately ask the the tough questions. What do you think about eternity? What is your hope uh, for the afterlife? What do you make of the resurrection of of Jesus? Amid an increasingly hostile environment of powerful forces, Daniel here in this chapter is equipping us to paddle against the tide, to stand where he stood, to choose as he chose, to firstly make prayer a priority, and secondly, to make our stand now and remain resolutely fearless in our faithfulness, whatever the changes may come in the world around us. Let's finish off the story. Back in Persia, the trap comes together. It's not so much as, as I thought as a child that Daniel is hanging out the side of his bay window showing off his prayer. Most windows in Babylon were, were smaller, up high to protect from the sun and, and security. No, it's, it's, it's more the fact that these senior ministers and a, and a few of the satraps just happened to be passing by Daniel's home and, and peering into his private quarters 
They, of course, as they suspected and assumed, found him remaining faithful in his prayer and worship. And well, of course, they bounced down to the king, and and despite all of his power, the king's lack of wisdom and foresight means he's between a rock and a hard place. He wants to spare Daniel. He tries to buy time, but he's put the decree into writing, and the celebrated legal system of the Medes and the Persians, the great advancement that they brought to civilization, now has reduced his power to nothing. And so he, subject to the rule of law, enforces the order and brings the elderly Daniel and tosses him into the lion's den. Darius sort of calls after him, may your God whom you continually serve rescue you. I guess more hope than expectation. And that's about as much as the king can do. The story follows him back to his palace. He spent the night without sleeping, without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him. Disturbed, distressed, and clearly the storyteller wants us to see that great King Darius is ultimately powerless. The strength of the law has rendered him weak. At dawn the next day, the king rushes to the pit. He shouts down to Daniel. And what an amazing response. O king, Daniel shouts back, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. They have not harmed me. It instantly became clear to Darius that the law of Daniel's God was much more superior than the law of his empire. And so he made a new proclamation. I make a decree that in my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. And once again, God provides in this book of Daniel, in times of pressure, in even times of seemingly hopelessness, He provides for the believers who trust in him. So as we conclude, how do you shut the mouth of a mindless eating machine like Bruce or like the lion? How do we survive in a world that may look like the law of the jungle out there? It may look like power politics wins, the biggest teeth, the biggest beast with the biggest roar. Well, things may get more difficult. In Northern Ireland, I think a lot of both the Ulster Protestant and nominal Catholic cultural Christianity will fall away and fall away rapidly. Perhaps friends and schoolmates brought up in evangelical churches will move away, perhaps particularly because of the issues we talked about this morning, to be LGBT affirming. It might feel lonely to remain faithful amongst your classmates at uni or in the office team or in the sports squad. It might be harder, more lonely. But yet, as these cultural trappings of Christendom fall away, true spiritual Christian faith now has a huge opportunity to be declared more clearly than it ever was before, both in what we say and on how we behave. A bit like that scene in Daniel 3, when everyone bows down, but these three guys are standing up. Look how clear it is what they stand for. 
And still at this moment, we have the freedom to speak, the privilege to show the love of God, to talk about the transforming power of Christ. And we must not delay. We're called to go against the tide of the values and potentially even the laws when they call us to disobey the law of God. And of course it's scary. But just like Daniel, through sustained commitment to the priority of prayer and a courageous fearlessness to uphold the truth of God faithfully, I certainly believe in the angelic support that shut the mouths of lions. And in fact, we have the promise of the Lord of hosts himself who is mighty to deliver that he will never leave or forsake us.